From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Today is the first day of phase one of the Pentagon's reopening. Chief Management Officer Lisa Hirschman's memo about the transition says the department continues to encourage telework with a goal of no more than 40% of the workforce in the office. Phase one also includes face coverings mandatory when six foot distances aren't possible and no more than 10 people in a gathering. The Mark Center is included in the phase one reopening. The Army will restructure its information technology leadership when Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford retires at the end of August. The force will split the chief information officer and G6 jobs Crawford holds now. FedScoop reports a civilian will take the CIO job, a three-star general will take the G6 role and lead policy implementation. The Department of Veterans Affairs says it has two million swabs for conducting coronavirus tests for employees. The head of the Veterans Health Administration, Dr. Richard Stone, tells the House Veterans Affairs Committee the agency will get five million more by the end of the month. Federal News Network reports Stone says the agency will offer employees antibody testing too. About 15% fewer federal employees retired this May compared to last May. Rates are stable month to month, but some folks think there could be a surge in retirement as agencies open their doors again. Tammy Flanagan is Senior Benefits Director at the National Institute of Transition Planning. Welcome, my friend. It's great to see you. When people are thinking about times to retire, the middle of the year doesn't strike me as the best time to do it. What should people be taking into consideration when they're thinking about exit strategies? Hi, Francis. Yeah, well, you're right. We always talk about the end of the year as the magic date to retire. So um, mid-year is really not a bad time. It, it's a good second best. In fact, OPM generally has a little mini surge at the end of June. And I think the reason for that is that some people like to maximize their TSP that last year that they work. So they kind of condense their contributions into the first six months of the year, maybe take advantage of their flexible spending account one last time and they're, they're kind of splitting the difference that first year where they have half salary half retirement benefits until they ease into that full year of retirement the following year and with the coronavirus I think a lot of people have had a taste of what it's like not to commute to the office every day so maybe they'll come back to work thinking they want to just continue not commuting so perhaps we will see that surge the, that And that's where I wanted to go. You have been looking at the best day to retire. You've been writing that column for a long time, since as long as I've been in this space. And I wonder if this has changed that dynamic, if the, the way that people are working now has changed that dynamic, if the way people are thinking about retiring or, or working has changed that dynamic, or if it's kind of just the same issues that we've looked at before. This is just maybe a different lens through which to look at them. Yeah, well, I think one of the main reasons why we have so many people retire at the end of the year, and we've traditionally had that um, over as long as I can remember, going back to the 80s, I hate to date myself, but I think part of the reason for that particular date being such a, a magic date is because it's the end of the leave year, which allows people to save up all their annual leave that they've accumulated the last year that they worked, plus what they carried over, so they get this big, huge lump sum payout if they're able to save that up. So that still, I think, will continue to be a popular time for people to leave. But 
every month there are literally thousands of federal employees who retire. And I was looking at the number of cases that came into OPM this year in like April, May, or March, April, and May, I guess, because I was looking at those three months since the virus started. And they're down a little bit from last year, but you have to remember last year we were dealing with the fallout from the from the furlough that happened. So we had a lot of cases coming in later to OPM just because they were delayed due to the furlough. So I think that retirements are still happening regardless of coronavirus. Um, it'll be interesting to see once we get back to work if that will actually increase those numbers. So it's an interesting time for sure. Yeah, and, and as I've been tracking those numbers the same way that you track, maybe not quite as intensely as you track them, Tammy, but as I've been looking at those numbers, it's amazing to me the year on year, the month on month consistency in those numbers. I mean, I've been in this space for a long time and since I've come into this space, we've been talking about maybe this will be the thing, whatever the thing is that triggers that retirement wave and it never seems to come. Is there a point where we think that maybe it's not gonna come, that it's just gonna continue to be the steady level of attrition as more folks become eligible to retire, but more folks actually do it as you just alluded to? Yeah, I think because we have such a large population of federal employees, and I'm trying to think back to my statistics class, <laughs> you know, the bigger the population, the more even the numbers get spread out. So I'm thinking that, yeah, we're always going to have a group of employees who are nearing retirement, who feel they're financially ready to leave, uh, most importantly, and also mentally prepared for this big transition. And they're going to go just as they always have. Um, we are a little top heavy in the government where I think you do have a lot lot more employees who are eligible to retire but being eligible and being ready to go are two different things you know we meet people every day who are eligible but yet they work 12 years past when they could have retired because they want to beef up their TSB account or have more service or be closer to social security you know for whatever reason so I don't know that we'll see this major tsunami that's been predicted for many years but um, time will tell we just have a couple of minutes left, Tammy. You do seminars all the time for NITP. You get questions from the readers of your column in GovExec. Is there a theme to the questions that you're getting right now, maybe in light of coronavirus or some other thing that's going on? Is, are you getting a lot of questions about one particular topic or a couple particular topics right now, Tammy? Yeah, surprisingly, and I was talking to some other folks who are in the same human resource areas I am. And it's like the questions have slowed down a little bit. I think people are more focused on trying to learn how to telework and try to learn what this new normal is going to look like. So I've gotten fewer questions. Um, the ones I have received have been more on the topics of things we need to be talking about, perhaps like what's going on with the volatility in the TSP account and how does that impact what people should be doing. And you know, my answer to that is, you know, hopefully you had a plan prior to this happening. Happening. So please, you know, try to stay the course on your investments so that you don't have a knee-jerk reaction or an emotional reaction to what's happening. Just try to stay with your plan, and hopefully uh, things will even out as time goes on. Retirement can last a long time. Tammy Flanagan, thanks very much. It's always great to have you on the program. Thank you, Francis. Up next, a six-agency team collaborates at light speed. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the census leads the march on data collaboration. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The coronavirus response is turbocharging agency collaboration. The Census Bureau and five other agencies are working together to share information and provide it to other parts of the government, Capitol Hill and the private sector. Victoria Velkoff is Associate Director for Demographic Programs at the Census Bureau. Thank you very much for coming on the program. How did you decide this collaboration was something you needed to do? Is it a legislative mandate? Is it something that each of your stakeholders told you they needed? Tell me more about how this works, Victoria. So uh, as we were headed into the pandemic, we got together as an agency and decided we really needed to do something to start collecting data on almost near real time. So we reached out to our federal partners and asked them if they would want to collaborate with us on this survey. And of course they all did. And that's how we started it. You told the Washington Post, we joke this is the fastest we've ever come to a decision. What drove that ability to do this quickly, not just to decide that you're going to do it, but to actually collect the information, collaborate together on how you're going to do it? Well, I think the country was facing a, you know, a global pandemic, something we'd never seen before. Everyone, we were shut down, stay-at-home orders were in place, and we knew that we had to move quickly so we could start to get data out there for policymakers. One of the challenges that agencies have run across over the years is data standards and the ability of agencies to understand what the other organization has. I note that this is a collaboration of the Census Bureau, National Center for Health Statistics, Bureau of Labor Statistics, Agriculture Department, HUD, National Center for Education Statistics. What kind of challenges or issues, if any, did you run into about data standards and how you could share what the other agencies had and how they could use what you had? Well, so those are all of our partners that we work with on a regular basis. So we really didn't have a hard time coming up with standards. Uh, the one thing that we asked each agency to do was to give us the most important questions that they wanted, wanted us to ask. And if they had those questions already tested, then that was great. If they didn't have them tested, then we put it through our cognitive testing at census. What specific kinds of questions are you asking and what will the benefit be for those organizations for the private sector organizations that will use this data and, and for Capitol Hill to look at this data? So we're asking a lot of questions. Um, we ask basic demographics and then we ask a series of health questions. So what is your overall health? What is your mental health? You've delayed access to health care. We ask questions about food security, about housing security, also about the impact that the pandemic had on education and how children were receiving education. And um, I think that's it. Uh, but these data are going to be critical for policymakers, I think. Who are you asking these questions of? How do you qualify them to know that they want to hear from you and that they're the kind of people that you want to ask the questions of? I imagine that's the demographic piece at the beginning of it, right? Right. So we did, um, just as we do for all of our surveys, we drew a random sample and we send out invitations via either text or email and ask people to participate in the online survey. So we know it's pretty much representative. Of course, we're getting much lower response rates than we do on our normal surveys, but we still are getting about 100,000 responses a week. That's a pretty significant statistical sample. Um, what, do you, what are you learning from this that you will apply to future types of data collection or collaboration with other agencies and so on? Well, so texting and emailing is a first for us on the household side. So we are learning that that actually works and texting works a little bit better than emailing. And so we hope to bring that into our, our household surveys that we do on a regular basis. Also having an online instrument is really important. 
I think it's easier for people to fill that out, especially now when we can't go out and visit people. It's nice to have an online instrument. Um, the Washington Post story about this says that this effort is costing you about $1.2 million. That doesn't sound like a lot at all to collect the kind of data that you're getting to get the kind of results that you're getting. How will you measure the return on investment for this project and how will you apply what you consider about an ROI here to the way that you think about future types of data, of specialized data collection like this, Victoria? Right, so the 1.2 million was really for the contractor to uh, field the survey for us, and it doesn't really include our staff time. Of course, we couldn't have done the survey if we didn't have the infrastructure in place that we have at the Census Bureau and have the expertise that we already have in place. So we really are, are playing off of our long-standing history of service. Victoria, we have uh, less than a minute left. How would you measure at some point in the future, whether this particular survey effort was successful and how you want to try to replicate it moving forward? Well, I think that we've already seen that it's successful. So we're measuring things real time. That's important for us as we have anecdotal evidence and we can measure things like in our survey, we're seeing that it's working real time. Um, I think we want to be poised if there's another uh, pandemic or some other disaster to get out into the field and collect data quickly. That's that's really the goal of this survey. Victoria, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Up next, planning for your agency to open its office doors again. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the accidental innovations that are helping agencies through the virus. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Internal Revenue Service will enter a new phase of sending employees back to work next week. The State Department, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Department of Agriculture also have plans in place to bring employees back to the office soon. Christine Simmons is Vice President of Government Affairs at the Partnership for Public Service. Christine, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What's your takeaway from what we're seeing about the workforce as it's kind of transformed through the, the, the process of, of dealing with this pandemic? There are some really fascinating things that we're watching across the government. And it includes looking at not just the overall standards that apply to all federal employees and federal agencies, but also the individual conditions that apply for these agencies that are serving across the country, not just in Washington. The individual conditions are, are striking to me because there are people having to think about things, Christine, that I, I never thought of before. You know, we, I mentioned the Internal Revenue Service, and those people are coming back. Some of the, the, the folks there will be overseeing just opening tons of envelopes of tax, people who are sending in tax returns, all kinds of very highly specialized things that are far away from the traditional kind of office-type clerical things that we would expect people would be doing when they go back to work. How are managers thinking, or how should managers be thinking through all of that? The partnership put together a, a list we're calling it ready to return to the workplace because there are so many different areas that they need to think about. Obviously things around public health and the safety of employees have to be paramount, but there are considerations like communication. How do you communicate to your employees and how should they be communicating with the public that they're serving? 
How does public transportation and the availability of public transportation affect the ability of people to return to the office? Um, what are the cleaning protocols that the agencies and the managers need to be cognizant of in addition to the cleaning crews? So there are so many things that they need to be thinking about. The more resources that we and others can put in front of them to help them make some of these decisions, the better. Have you seen any kind of uh, accidental innovations or unintended uh, consequences or unintended positives that have been helpful through this pandemic? I'm so glad you asked that question. And I'm gonna pick on the VA in a positive way and just give you three examples of some really creative things I think the VA has been doing in response that we think could prov provide a model going forward that will continue. So the first is around hiring. On average, it takes 90 days roughly to hire and onboard a new VA employee. By working with HR specialists in the field and using the existing authorities they have in creative ways, they've been able to onboard new staff in three days. They have said this has revolutionized the way they hire at the VA, and we expect to see ongoing and long-term improvement in their ability to bring people on. A second thing they've done that's really interesting is the use of mobile apps. They created an app called uh, VA, uh, called the COVID Coach, and it's a mental health app. And it's not just for VA, uh, for veterans and, and staff, but it's for anybody who could use this kind of centering and mental health wellness app to help them. And then the third uh, aspect I would really love to highlight is the importance of leadership. Paul Lawrence, who leads the Veterans Benefits Administration, has used platforms like LinkedIn and YouTube to do a weekly touch base with veterans all over the country. He's got a segment called Info You Need to Know in 10 Minutes or Less. And he set a personal goal of reaching a million veterans personally. And they're doing this state by state, region by region with tremendous engagement with the veteran um, community. So those are some interesting new ways that agencies are responding that we think would portend good news for the long term. What would you like to see leaders at agencies do to make sure some of these things, these changes that they've undertaken as a result of the pandemic, some of the good ones stick so that they don't get kind of lost in the shuffle when agencies start to transition back toward a more normal method of operations? The first thing they need to do is catalog them. And one of the ways we're gonna do that is by asking the employees who work across these agencies to feed those good ideas and new ways that they've found of doing things better, feed that up the chain to make sure that they're not lost. So the workforce is gonna be the best source of advice on how to do things better and smarter, making sure that they have a voice and that there's a way to capture all of that's gonna be essential. We uh, just have a couple of minutes left. Recently, you spoke to the uh, House uh, Select Committee on Modernization. What was the message you took to them, Christine? The Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress is leading by example. They are continuing with their virtual, uh, they're not calling them hearings, they're virtual discussions. They have issued over, I believe, 45 recommendations at this point, 30 of which have been adopted by the House, which is really exciting. Uh, one of the things I was talking about was the ways that the things happening on the executive branch side can help inform Congress and how Congress and uh, within the D.C. office and the district office can work better together. 
the select committee has undertaken a lot of interesting issues that tend to be below the radar that are so important to the functioning of Congress. And you know, to give you one example, um, they have advocated more recently for something like a dedicated space off the House floor where members on both sides of the aisle can meet and collaborate. There's a Republican cloakroom and a Democratic cloakroom. There's no place where they can come together in a private way, maybe work behind the scenes to work some things out. So that's one of the recommendations that they made to promote civility and comity in the House. They're also tackling really practical issues like making Congress and the, the Capitol complex more accessible for people with disabilities, improving diversity of staff, um, addressing staff turnover. So many interesting issues. They're very hard at work. Uh, they operate in a very bipartisan way and they will be running through the tape uh, when they uh, wrap up in October of 2020. Christine Simmons, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.